You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. of uh, messages looking at the Old Testament book of Ezra and the way God used this priest and scribe uh, to lead the nation of Israel out of captivity there in Babylon. And he, and he used Ezra to kind of lead them back to Jerusalem. And he uses Ezra in part in helping to rebuild and to restore the Jewish nation as well as the Jewish temple. Now, in the book of Ezra, as I said last week, part of the reason why we're looking at this is because there are spiritual principles that God used there uh, through Ezra as well as other uh, prophets at that time to bring revival and restoration back to the nation of Israel. And the reason we want to look at this book is because I believe they are the same principles that God would want to use in reviving and restoring any lost, broken, sinful nation. And what Ezra does there are some of the same things we need to do uh, in reviving and restoring our nation. So let's kind of begin where we uh, began last week, and that's just looking again at that first chapter uh, there in uh, Ezra chapter 1. It, it's what uh, scholars kind of call the proclamation. And beginning in verse 1, it says, In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. God stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it throughout his kingdom. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, and there he's using the, the name Yahweh, Yahweh, the Elohim of heaven, that's the word God in the Hebrew, he says, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, if you were here last week, you would, again, this is Amazing. This is astounding that God is using a pagan king. This is a king who is reigning over a very wicked, pagan, um, just idolatrous nation. And God is using this pagan king to do all of this through. And he says, he has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem in Judah to rebuild this temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem. What a proclamation. And may your God be with you. Wherever this Jewish remnant is found, let their neighbors contribute toward their expenses by giving them silver and gold and supplies for the journey and livestock, as well as voluntary offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Now again, these first four verses there in the opening chapter of Ezra 1 tells us about 
what King Cyrus um, is issuing. And he's calling upon the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild their temple and to restore their nation. Now you'll notice in this opening proclamation, King Cyrus mentions the Lord fulfilling a prophecy that had been given through a particular prophet by the name of Jeremiah. Now again, this is very interesting because King Cyrus is not Jewish, okay? He is a pagan king ruling over a pagan nation. And like I said last week, the nation of Babylon at this time, it was kind of the fountainhead of all idolatry and all paganism. And King Cyrus, again, he's not Jewish, but he is aware of a prophecy uh, given by the prophet Jeremiah. And again, I don't know how familiar he is with Jeremiah the prophet or the, the book, the scroll of Jeremiah. Uh, but at any rate, he makes reference to this prophecy as his motivation for doing and saying what he's doing and saying. So uh, in Jeremiah chapter 25, um, this is the prophecy that he is referring to, and he is referring to the prophecy where the nation of Israel would be taken captive. And I want to read to you several verses from chapter 25, because I think it's so insightful uh, in in giving us a glimpse into the, the character, the nature, and the attributes of God. So I want to just go to Jeremiah chapter 25 and begin with verse 2. And there it says this, Jeremiah the prophet said to all the people in Judah and Jerusalem, he says, for the past 23 years, now I want, I want to just pause there, I want that to sink in. Jeremiah is saying to the nation of Israel, for the past 23 years, not the past 23 days, not the past 23 months, not the past 23 minutes, the past 23 years, from the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, until now, the Lord has been giving his message. I have faithfully passed them on to you, but you have not listened. For 23 years, God is giving a message to the nation of Israel. And again, to me, that 23 years, it is a glorious example of God's faithfulness, of God's patience, of God's long-suffering. Because see, if, you, if it were you and I, and we're giving a message to people, and they're not responding, most of us would give them 23 minutes to turn it around, to get on board, you know, to, to do what you're being told to do, right? I mean, as parents, we're not going to give our kids 23 years to do what we're telling them to do. We're going to give you 23 seconds to shape up or you're going to ship out. But that's not how God deals with the nation of Israel. He says, for 23 years, I have been faithfully giving you the same message over and over and over, but you wouldn't listen. 
Again and again, the Lord has sent you his servants, the prophets, but you have not listened or even paid attention. Each time the message was this, turn from the evil roads you are traveling and from the evil things you are doing. Only then will I let you live in this land that the Lord gave to you and your ancestors forever. Do not provoke my anger by worshiping idols you made with your own hands. Then I will harm you. But you would not listen to me, says the Lord. You made me furious by worshiping idols you made with your own hands, bringing on yourselves all the disasters you now suffer. And now the Lord of heaven's army says, because you have not listened to me, I will gather together all the armies of the north under King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And again, here's a pagan king. And, and look at this. Whom I, God, have appointed as my deputy. Sometimes the ways that God brings judgment upon a nation are through the rulers, through the kings, through presidents, through politicians that he allows to come into office. And he doesn't bring them into office because he agrees with them. He brings them into office so that he can use them to execute judgment upon nations. And so this is why he says, I'm using King Nebuchadnezzar, who again, not Jewish, he's not a righteous man, he's a very wicked man, he's a very evil man, but God says, I'm going to appoint him as my deputy, I'm going to use him to bring judgment upon the nation of Israel. He says, I will bring them all, and he's talking about the nation of Babylon there, I'll bring them all against this land and its people and against the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy you and make you an object of horror and contempt and a ruin forever. I will take away your happy singing and laughter. The joyful voices of bridegrooms and brides will no longer be heard. Your millstones will fall silent and the lights in your homes will go out. This entire land will become a desolate wasteland. Israel and her neighboring lands will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Now, God uses this warning to Israel through the prophet Jeremiah 20 years before it ever comes to pass. So God doesn't just declare this and then bam, it happens. God gives them, again, this warning. Here's what's gonna happen. If you don't listen, if you don't turn from your wicked ways, if you don't repent and allow me to restore and to revive your nation, here's what's gonna happen. And I'm, I, I've been talking to you for 23 years and he gives them another 20 years before this eventually comes to be fulfilled. Now, I believe at any point in those 20 years leading up to Israel's captivity by Babylon, if the nation of Israel simply would have turned from their wicked ways, if they simply would have repented, God would have spared them. And this is just how gracious and merciful and long-suffering. You can find no better examples of this in Scripture to talk about, again, how patient, how long-suffering, um, how steadfast God is. 
This is why in most cases, not always, but in most cases, this is why you can sin and not have immediate consequences. Because again, it's God demonstrating to us in our rebellion, in our sinfulness, it's God demonstrating to us, I am a gracious God, I'm a loving God, I'm a merciful God, I'm a patient God, I am a long-suffering God, and I'm going to give you a window of opportunity to, to change your life, to turn from your wicked ways, and to repent. But eventually, if we don't, the Bible's very clear. There's going to be consequences, both in this life and in the life to come. It's, it's the way that God has wired the world, and it's the way that he has arranged his relationship to us. That's why Peter writes in 2 Peter 3.8, he says, but you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years is like a day. And Peter says, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promises as some people think. You know, they think, well, the judgment of God uh, hasn't come. So, so God must not be uh, uh, telling us the truth or, or God's just, you know, trying to manipulate us by telling us he's going to judge us. And so, you know, just because it, it's not coming, well, you know, God's not going to do it. And, and what, what he's saying here is he's saying the Lord isn't really being slow about it, as some people think. He says, no. He's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. So whereas the nation of Israel sinning and sinning, rebelling and rebelling and doing their own thing instead of God's thing, they're thinking God is fine with this because he wasn't judging them. He wasn't sending consequences. They were actually, and they didn't realize it, they were actually experiencing God's patience. God was allowing them, giving them a window of time to recognize, to hear what he was saying, to repent and to turn from their wicked ways. The same is true for every one of us in this room. When we sin, when we rebel against God, and we don't face immediate consequences for those sins, and again, God has every right. The second we sin, we rebel against him. God has every right because he is a just God to just strike us dead. But he, he tempers his justice with his mercy with his kindness, his goodness, his patience. And there are times when we sin and, and, and God withholds judgment. He withholds punishment. It's not okay with God that we're, what we're doing, what we're doing. But the truth is, is in those moments of rebellion, God is allowing us to experience his patience. He's giving us a window of time in order to repent. And again, if we're wise, we know what to do with those times. 
So Jeremiah was the prophet that, that God used to deliver the news that the nation of Israel was gonna be taken captive, taken to Babylon, and they were gonna remain there for 70 years. And if you remember, it was then Daniel. Remember, Daniel is one of those, as a very young, young man, Daniel is, is part of the nation of Israel that was taken captive and taken to Babylon. And it was Daniel um, who one day, uh, he's, he's probably 70 years later, uh, he's reading those very words I just read to you from Jer Jeremiah 25, and he sees that the nation of Israel was to be held captive for 70 years in Babylon. And, and so he sees that prophecy there in Jeremiah, and Daniel begins to do the math in his head and he begins to realize they are at the end of their 70 years. And in response to that, you remember Daniel, he begins to fast and he begins to pray um, for the return and the restoration of the, of the nation of Israel back to their homeland. Now, one final piece of this puzzle that I believe you'll find very, very interesting. And this comes from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 44, beginning in verse 28, this is what it says. And th this is God speaking to Isaiah. When I say of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He will certainly do as I say. He will command, rebuild Jerusalem. He will say, restore the temple. This is what the Lord says to Cyrus, his anointed one, whose right hand he will empower. Before him, mighty kings will be paralyzed with fear. Their fortress gates will be open, never to shut again. This is what the Lord says, I will go before you, Cyrus, and level the mountains. I will smash down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron and I will give you treasure so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, the one who calls you by name. And why have I called you for this work? Why did I call you by name when you do not know me? It is for the sake of Jacob, my servant, Israel, my chosen one. I am the Lord. There is no other God. I have equipped you for battle, though you don't even know me. So all the world from east to west will know there is no other God. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Now the Cyrus Isaiah refers to there is King Cyrus there in Ezra chapter one. Now you wanna know what's so amazing about this particular prophecy in, in scripture? These words of Isaiah were written 150 years before King Cyrus ever ruled Persia or was even born. God gave this prophecy to Isaiah 150 years before it would ever come to pass. And God specifically tells Isaiah who would be the king at that time, a man by the name of Cyrus. So here in, in the opening book of Ezra chapter one, 
Cyrus is in his first year reigning as the king of Persia. And I believe Ezra takes these prophecies, these scrolls from Jeremiah chapter 25, declaring the the 70 years of captivity. I think he also takes the scroll of Isaiah chapter 44 and 45, declaring that it would happen under a king named Cyrus who would allow the nation of Israel to return to their homeland. And I believe as they bring those to this king, king Cyrus looks at those, he reads those prophecies, and he decided to believe what God had said, even though he was not a follower of God. He was not a part of Israel. He was not a part of the Jewish nation. Because he chose to believe what God's word said. Not only does King Cyrus see what God wants him to do, he also reads in there where if he is obedient to do what God tells him to do, that God would bless him. And that's what you see there in verses two through three. God is saying, he says, I will go before you, Cyrus, and I'll level the mountains. I will smash down the gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron, and I will give you hidden treasures in the darkness, secret riches. Cyrus sees what God wants him to do, and he sees there's a blessing attached to obedience, and he chooses to believe and to do what God said to do. God always blesses us when we are obedient to him. And Cyrus wanted the blessing that came with obedience. And that is why King Cyrus responds the way he does there in the opening verse of Ezra 1. Not only does King Cyrus allow any of the Jewish captives, he said, any of you that want to return, you're free to go. But he also encourages others in verses four through five. He says, and and those of you who remain behind, I want you and, and, and I want fellow Babylonians, I want them to contribute towards your journey. I want them to contribute toward the rebuilding and the restoration of the nation of Jerusalem and the temple. And not only that, but you see in verses seven through 11, King Cyrus also returns to the Jewish nation all of the holy utensils King Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple there in Jerusalem when he destroyed the temple and when he had led the Israelite captive for 70 years, he takes all of the utensils that they used to worship the Lord God there in the temple and he took them all to Babylon. And King Cyrus says, I'm going to take those and I'm going to give you those back and you take them so that when your temple is restored, you can once again use those utensils of God. You look at chapter one and you see everything that God was able to do through one pagan king who chose to be obedient to God's word. Now imagine what God could do through those who were called his sons and daughters. 
Again, I believe what we see here in Ezra is that obviously obedience is one of the keys to revival. Listen to what the prophet Samuel says in 1 Samuel 15, 22. But Samuel replied, what is more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, listen, listen. Obedience is way better than sacrifice. And submission is better than the offering of the fat of rams. What is more pleasing to the Lord? Your tithes? Your offerings? Listen, obedience is better than your tithes and submission is better than your offerings. Deuteronomy 28 verse one, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully keep all his commands that I'm giving you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the world. The more we not only hear the voice of God, but obey what he is telling us, it will not only bless us, but I believe God will use it in restoring and reviving our land, just as he was doing through King Cyrus. Now, I'm not gonna spend a whole lot of time on chapter two of Ezra because it's simply a list of names of the families that chose to respond and to take up King Cyrus's uh, offer to return to their homeland and be a part of the rebuilding and the restoration. What I find interesting, uh, and, and Denny, this will kind of, tie into our conversation on Wednesday night. We kind of had a conversation about as you're reading the Bible and you kind of come to those places and uh, I think First Chronicles and there are many other places in scriptures where you start running into this very long list of names. Karen and I, we struggle with that every time with the Bible reading marathon. What do we do with the chapters with all the names? And I'm sure every person that, that's gotten that list of names just cringes because you want to do justice to the names, but some of those names are so hard to pronounce. And, and so uh, I, I, I told Denny as we were talking about that, I said, a lot of times I'll just kind of skim through the names and I'll, I'll look for certain things. And I'll show you what I did with this list of names in chapter two. I didn't go through all of them because I don't know any of them. Uh, there, there was no name in there that was significant uh, to me but I was, I was able to find some, uh, some good teaching uh, there in chapter two, and I'll share that with you uh, in just a moment. So again, what I find interesting is not everyone who was taken captive 70 years ago wanted to return to their homeland. Now you remember in, in Egypt, when Moses went and led the nation out of slavery, Every Israelite was eager to, to get out of there. I mean, it was like, man, uh, I, I, we, I just, I'm ready to go. They were beyond ready to go. 
okay? But when it came to the captivity there in Babylon, not everyone responded or took up King Cyrus's offer to let them return to their homeland. And there are some very good reasons for this. First of all, some of them who would have come as young teenagers or in their early uh, 20s, like Daniel and his companions, you know, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, okay? They would have probably been well into their 80s, okay, by now, and a trip like this would have been extremely difficult for them to make. And that's why Daniel uh, may have chosen just to remain in Babylon. You remember he's serving uh, very high up in the government and he may have felt called to stay there uh, and not return to his homeland. So there were some of them that were there in captivity that just decided to remain there in Babylon. The journey back uh, to Jerusalem, it was very, very difficult. It was treacherous. It was a four-month journey. I mean, talk about are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? So it was a four-month journey. The, the travel conditions would have been very, very treacherous. Oftentimes, those roads would have been filled uh, with a, a lot of robbers. So there, there were very good reasons why not everybody uh, was anxious to return to their homeland. For others, maybe who were born there, Babylon was all they knew. They, they didn't have any, any point of reference what life was like in Israel at one time. There, there wasn't a, a vision. There was no picture there of what could be, they just knew what was, okay? And, and historian records indicate that many Jews during their time of captivity there in Babylon had accumulated great wealth. Now again, when, when you look at the, the captivity of Israel there in Egypt, it was hard, hard labor. It was brutal conditions that they labored under there. The Jews in Babylon, they were allowed great freedoms and they were able to have jobs and, and to buy homes and to accumulate wealth, to have families. So for many of them, returning Jerusalem would have meant having to give all of that up, uh, everything they owned, everything they worked so hard for, and basically to go back to nothing and to, to have to really start all over from scratch. And so they couldn't bring themselves uh, to leave Babylon. And, and some of them just preferred the wealth and the security that Babylon uh, offered and that they were not willing to make the sacrifices and the discomforts that returning and rebuilding uh, Israel uh, would have required. One of the things with revival and restoration, it will always require sacrifices, always. Jesus talks about the condition of our heart in the parable of the four soils in Mark 4. And Jesus described the seed that fell among the thorns there in verse uh, 18 this way. He said, the seed that fell among the thorn represents others who hear God's word. But all too quickly, the message is crowded out or drowned out by the worries of this life, the lure of wealth, and the desire for other things, so no fruit is produced. So for some people, the, the worries of this life, you know, the lure of wealth, 
the desire for other things will keep us from lifting and taking up our crosses and following Jesus. We also really kind of see this in Jesus' response there to the young rich ruler in Matthew 19. And remember, he comes to Jesus and he asks that question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And at some point, Jesus tells him, to go, sell all of your possessions, give the money to the poor, then come and follow me. And, and you remember the young rich ruler, he kind of walks away dejected and very sad because he was very wealthy and very attached to his possessions. And then in verse 23, Jesus declares in response to the reaction of the young rich ruler, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. It is very hard not impossible, but it's very hard. It's very difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, I'll say it again. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And you remember the disciples' response to Jesus' statement is they're, they're just taken back. They're shocked. And Peter responds to Jesus in verse 23, and he says, then who in the world can be saved? To which Jesus says, humanly speaking, it is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. Then Jesus, uh, Peter says to Jesus, we've given up everything. We've sacrificed everything to follow you. What will we get? And listen to this part of Jesus' response there in verse 28. And everyone... Everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. Again, following Jesus, taking up our cross, revival, restoration of a nation will require sacrifices that many will not be willing to make. And that is why revival often tarries. The people and families listed there in Ezra chapter 2 they were the first uh, wave of people who, who would make that journey, but they wouldn't be the last, but they were the first wave of people that would make that initial journey uh, back to Jerusalem. But it was this initial group, this first group of people listed there in Ezra chapter two, they're gonna make the greatest sacrifice. You have to remember when the nation of Israel was first taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar, he had completely destroyed and he ransacked all of Israel, especially Jerusalem, and he had completely leveled the temple there. So this first wave of people were returning basically to a barren wasteland, and it would, it would require them starting completely over. It, it, it'd be like people that, you know, in the United States that, that went west and, and they were traveling in lands that, that had never been traveled in, never been lived in, and all of the challenges they faced in that new frontier. And, and it's kind of the same thing here with the nation of Israel. There were inhabitants uh, who had taken over that land 
You know, when they took him out, there were some Israelites that stayed, but there were many others that kind of moved in and, and they kind of began to take over. And they were inhabitants who were not very friendly and they were gonna be inhabitants who were not very willing to give up what, what they believed was now theirs. It's also interesting to note, and this is where I kind of want to go uh, with what I was mentioning to you, Denny, is what I find interesting as I'm kind of reading through the list of names is there's a couple of categories in there that I think are very, very interesting to note and to understand. And in, in, in verses 36 through 39, you find a particular category of people there uh, and, and it's listed as the priest. So he, he kind of uh, takes a, a role, a function of the priest, and he specifically lists those families because they would be the ones that, that would be needed to be able to restore the sacrifices um, there in the uh, temple once it was rebuilt. They were the ones that would, would be needed to perform the priestly task that no one else could do. Uh, and remember, Ezra is a priest, so, so he's going to be part of that, uh, that labor there. In verses 40 through 42, you find again another category uh, of people, and those were the Levites. And they were very, very important. They were very, very key uh, to, again, rebuilding and restoring Jerusalem and the temple and they were really there to kind of assist the priest uh, in their duties in the temple. Uh, the Levites were responsible for the care and the upkeep of the, of the temple, but they were never, ever allowed to go near the furnishings. Uh, they were never allowed to go near the altar. That was for the priest only. And then in verses 43 through 54, you find again another category and, and families represented there and they would be temple servants and they would be like the craftsmen, the builders, the woodworkers, the stone carvers and, and they would be very, very vital in, in building the physical structure there of the temple. And so you, you see certain categories that were extremely critical. They were very, very necessary if the nation of Israel was going to rebuild and restore themselves, especially the temple. And all of these different categories represented people who had different uh, gifts, different contributions, different callings, different roles, but all of them together were necessary in rebuilding and restoring the nation of Israel. And the reason I point this out is because that is true of the church today. In order for the church to function at its fullest capacity, there is an important part for every person to play. Not just some not just the pastors, not just the worship leaders, not just the, you know, the children's ministry team. Everybody has a role and a function and a place in the body of Christ in the church today. And the New Testament lists some of those differing uh, needs as evangelists. We need them. Pastors, teachers, those who have the gift of faith, of healing, of serving, those who can prophesy, uh, again, as well as many other spiritual gifts. All different gifts, all different roles, all different 
functions, yet all necessary to the building up and the maturing of the body of Christ. Oftentimes, the reason the church isn't getting built up and it's not maturing as a body is because there are those of us who, have, who are not uh, taking our place, we're not using our gifts, we're not functioning in the way that we were equipped to function in the church. And as a result of that, not only do you suffer, but the body suffers. And, and this is kind of what Paul's getting at there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. He says, the human body has many different parts. Y'all agree with that, right? Human body has many different parts. You're, you're a walking, living, breathing example of that. Amen? But the many parts make up one whole body. And no one's going to argue with that, right? So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free, some are white, some are brown, some are black, some are American, some are Mexican, some are Jewish, some are German. I mean, you get the idea what Paul's saying here. But regardless of our differences, he said, we've all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same Holy Spirit. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. So the foot, so if you think of your foot, if the foot says, I'm not a part of your body because I'm not a hand, that doesn't make it any less part of the body. And if the ear says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? If your whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many different parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. If you're a part of the body of Christ, God has put you exactly where he wants you to be. And he has gifted and equipped you exactly the way he wanted to gift you and equip you. How strange a body would it be if it only had one part? I mean, just imagine yourself walking around as a giant ear or a giant eyeball. Yes, there are many parts, but one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, get out of here. In fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. And the parts we regard as less honorable are those we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen, while the most honorable parts do not require this special care. And Paul is, says all this, and, and then he says, so, or therefore, God has put the body together such that extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. Now, why did he do that? 
What's he doing here? Well, Paul says, this makes for harmony among the members. So that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. If one part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you together, all of us together are Christ's body and each of you are a part of it. Every person that Ezra listed there, every family, every role, every function that Ezra listed there in chapter two had a specific task to fulfill and every task needed to be done in the rebuilding and the restoration of Israel. Uh, And God has made provision for every role, every function, every gift to, to be present and ready to go back. And the same is true for the church. Everything we need to become all that God is calling and desiring for us to become as a body, he's made provision for it. It's here. It's in this place. It's under this roof. Each one of you plays a very, very special, unique role in what God is doing in this church and the universal church to mature us as a body, to use us to minister to the people around us. I am not more important than you are. My role is not more vital than your role. We're all equal. We're all on on the same footing here. No one can say to another here, you're not important here. We don't need you. We don't need that gift. We don't need that function. We don't need that role. Every one of us, if we're going to mature as a body, if we're going to fulfill God's calling, it, it requires every one of us to step up. Be like, you know, how, how, you, how would you feel if your hand was just, your arm just stopped working? I mean, imagine how that would affect your overall body or, or your, your foot, your leg just stopped working. Imagine how that would affect your entire body. And the same thing happens when, when individuals just decide, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to contribute. I'm going to let everybody else do it. And, and we walk around with, with body that, that uh, the arms don't function, you know, the eyes can't see, the ears can't hear, and, and, and there's parts of the body that are working, but other parts of the body aren't, and therefore the, the body is disabled, and, and it's, it's not going to prosper. It's not going to do what the body was designed to do. That's what Paul's getting at here, and that's what God was doing in this first wave of people that were going back there in, in Ezra chapter 2. He made sure the right people, the right gifts, the right functions, everything that Israel needed to rebuild, to restore the nation of Israel, to rebuild the temple, God made sure it was all there and ready to go. So as we conclude looking at chapters one and two of Ezra, our goal as a congregation, I talked about this last week, got to stay in the word of God daily. 
We gotta be hearing the voice of God and not just hearing, but we need to be obeying. We need to be doing what God is telling us to do. If you don't have a Bible reading plan, if you don't have a process that gets you into the word, uh, we've got some Bible reading plans out there uh, on the welcome table. Uh, Cheryl would be more than happy to meet you back there and get you one, or you can go online. They've got many uh, different Bible reading plans. You can find one that you can kind of just tailor uh, to your specific need. Every one of us need to be in the word of God on a daily basis. So God is able to speak to, to encourage, and to call uh, and mature the body of Christ through his word. Second goal is you gotta know the ways God has gifted you. And then you gotta know, okay, God, this is how you've gifted me. This is the role that you've called me to. How do I use that to serve other people? How do I use this particular gift and role, the function you're calling me to, how do I use this to mature the body of Christ? If you're not sure what your gifts are, uh, may be. We do have resources that we would love to be able to make available to you. You can discover what those are, discover the ways that God would want to use you in the ministry um, of the church. So those, those are my two challenges. Get into the word on a daily basis and figure out what are my giftings? What part of the body am I? And what is my function in that body? And, and don't say to yourself, well, yeah, the body just doesn't have need of me. Paul, Paul speaks to that. And, and we need to dismiss that. That is the enemy lying and deceiving you. Every one of you has a gift, a calling, a role in this church. It is your responsibility to God to figure out what that is and how do I begin to use that. And there are people here that would be glad to sit down with you, help you, work with you to discover what those are, and then to get those uh, in action. Amen? So next week, we will pick up with chapter three uh, of Ezra. Let's stand together. Father, we just again thank you so much. And Lord, I know that um, it's, it's a lot when we see the condition of our world. It's a lot. It can be overwhelming. It can be intimidating. It can feel exhausting and overwhelming, Lord. But we know, God, that you want to revive this land. We know, God, you want to rebuild this nation. That you want us again to be that that shining light on a hill. And so, Father, we just pray this morning that, that as a congregation, as, as the people of God, that we would just turn to you, that we would repent from our wicked ways, we would repent from our rebellion. And again, acknowledge God and thank you for your patience, your kindness, your, your long-suffering, God, that you give us a window of time to hear and to respond. And so Lord, I just pray that if there's any here this morning that, that just need to repent, that God, you would again just speak to their hearts, God, move upon their hearts this morning. That God, you would show them the area or the areas of their life, God, where they, they just need to repent uh, and, and to turn towards you. And that, God, we just thank you, Lord, because, again, it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. And it's your kindness, it's your goodness, God, that will restore us 
as your people. And God, as we do that as a congregation, Father, I just believe, Lord, that you will, you will begin and you'll continue the work of revival and restoration in this church. And that, Lord, you'll use this church to bring revival and restoration to our city, to our state, and then to our nation. But God, you're gonna begin here first. Judgment begins in the house of God. You're gonna deal with the house of God. And so, Lord, this morning, we just, we wanna be dealt with. We wanna be challenged. We wanna be called out. We wanna be, be that first wave of people that you're using to restore and to revive the land. So Father, this morning, just help us to hear your voice and to know that, that obedience is better than sacrifice. Surrender is better than any offering we would make. And so God, make us an obedient people. We thank you, God, that if you can use a person like King Cyrus and King Nebuchadnezzar, people that didn't know you, how much more you can use those of us who do know you, who are called by your name. So Father God, I just, I just pray, Lord, that every person here would be using their giftings, their callings, and their roles to, to again, to build up, to encourage, and to mature this body. No more excuses. No more standing around and watching other people do it. That Paul has given to us a call for the whole body. Not just certain parts, but the whole body has a role and a function in the overall body. And the same is true with us, Lord. And I pray again, we'll hear that calling. You'll give us revelation into our giftings, our abilities, and the roles that we're being called to play, God, and that we'll be faithful in that. And again, we thank you, God, for who you are and for what you're doing. And that, God, you'll use us as co-workers with you in accomplishing all of your plans and purposes for this church, this city, this state, and this nation, Father. And we thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we just invite you, uh, if you want to remain for time of just... Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.